Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with the delightful Christina Lai. Uh, Christina is the Vice President and Deputy General Counsel and Corporate Secretary at Robin Hood, and she's been there for a, a couple of years now. It's a fantastic discussion. She takes us through her journey. Her early career was at Latham Watkins, and that was during the dot-com bubble and bust. Time at Yahoo, Applied Materials, and more recently now at Robin Hood. So lots of learnings. What stood out for me in my discussion with Christina is, is kind of leadership. A working mother, she's achieved an incredible amount in her career and really impressive role model. And we talk a bit about role models too and, and course correcting when, when sometimes you're not necessarily the best role model and being able to call that out. So it's a fascinating discussion. I, I absolutely loved it and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Christina Lai, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm so looking forward to this discussion. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. It is such a pleasure to be here. Oh, no, the pleasure is all mine. Now, Christina, you're currently the Vice President and Deputy General Counsel and Corporate Secretary of Robin Hood. But you haven't always been in that position. There is a Christina Lai story, and I'm dying to get in. But take me right back. What were the early days that got you interested in law in the first place? And let's take it from there. I don't really remember, to be totally honest, when I became interested in law. I didn't actually grow up knowing any lawyers. Uh, my parents were actually immigrants from Taiwan. My dad was a doctor. So I think there was an expectation that my siblings and I would all be doctors. Yep. Um, yep. And, and then you make it to college and you realize that's not really what I'm interested in. There were a few things that I was interested in that I think just instinctively sort of pushed me in that direction. One is language. I love language. I love writing, interpreting text. I also just enjoy rules and laws and understanding those. And it's really, for me, it's about like how do societies and organizations and countries, you know, structure and govern themselves. So, so real interest in that. And then advocacy, right? Structuring arguments to support political issues or ideas, and then finally problem solving. And so I think the practice of law is just such an interesting and exciting combination of those elements. And it's funny, the way you've described those, Christina, they, for me, are all superpowers, if you get that right, because it all comes down to communication. And the, and that's what one thing I'm certainly grateful for, just in the training side and the experience of it. I think, um, I think lawyers can be great communicators because they, un- you know, they're logical, structured, they have to. They know when they're on their feet. Certainly, the litigators of us. When we're on our feet, we know we've got one minute to get attention and then to really identify, identify what the key issues are. So I, I absolutely always encourage that. You know, whatever you're actually studying, if you can actually get really good at that and articulate really clearly, especially complex ideas, notions, mm-hmm. arguments, 
that's a superpower that continues to serve you well in your in your career. So tell me, what are some of the early influences um, in the earlier part of your career? Now, I know you spent about six years or so at Latham Watkins, mm-hmm. so a, f- a firm that probably not many people have heard about. But anyway, so you you've spent so you had fantastic training. Tell me, what are the, some of the influencing factors in those early years, and what would you do differently? I was very fortunate to to join Latham and Watkins and and to to get started in big law coming out of law school. I went in thinking I was going to be a litigator because at the time yep. that's what you saw on TV. Of course. Um, and but this was the late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, Latham. I started in their San Francisco office. They had recently started a Menlo Park office. It was very small, and that was a time when things were really interesting for young corporate lawyers. You could really get in there. I, you know, I was working in my first couple of years, I was doing litigation um, and I was working on, I was very fortunate to work on a big trial. Um, but that is, there is a particular cadence and there's a particular kind of work. I was doing um, a lot of, uh, of, you know, document discovery and, yeah. and, and diligence and writing memos. And, you know, you could also be a young corporate attorney at the time and do and, and run your own you know, transactions. There are a lot yep. of uh, VC investments going on at the time. There are a lot of um, young private companies that needed representation. And so I kind of, I made the switch to corporate. And again, it was just such a wonderful training ground because I got, like I said, I got to do a lot of those um, those transactions, those financing transactions. I got to work on IPOs, secondary financings on both the issuer and the underwriter side. I was representing private companies, public companies. I was doing m and was doing some, you know, commercial transactions. So it was just a really amazing variety of work and, and, and getting to work with a, a lot of different lawyers, seeing different styles, seeing what kind of worked for them, what could work for me. And I can see the, t- the timing though. So let's not skip over this 97 to 2003. So you're right in the middle of, the last few years of the dot-com bubble and then you're right smack in the middle of the crash and the few years after that. So um, the, the timing in terms of an experience point of view and what you're doing, it couldn't be better. It could not have been, I mean, obviously terrible yes. for um, the, the crash and so forth, but from yeah. an experience point of view, you must have learnt an absolute truckload about yourself um, as well as you know the perfect you know as tr- transactions becoming a better lawyer. Talk talk yes. a little bit. That feels like it would have been formative. Yeah, I, I think that's right. That's something, Jim, that I've seen throughout my career too. And this is what I tell people now too, as we're seeing the market turn a little bit for a lot of my younger colleagues, both in in law and 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 outside of law, um, who haven't been through these really challenging times. I keep saying like this is the time that you learn. And that was something that happened too. I ended up going to Yahoo right after I was yep. at Latham. And I ended up staying there for over a decade. Uh, and I don't want to skip over that because that is, I mean, you're at Yahoo between, I think, what is it, 2000, 2003 to 13. Yeah. So that is a, that's a cracking time <laughs> to be at Yahoo too. That's Funnily right. enough, I, I just listened to a podcast only a couple of days ago with the new CEO Um, at Yahoo. Uh, I think Jim Lazzoni was his name. And it was just interesting because the the Yahoo back then, of course, is a different, different to the Yahoo now. But that period in itself, I'd love to learn about that because you must have learned a truckload. Yes, I did. And like I said, I ended up staying there for such a long time. 
because it was such an amazing t- place to learn and to grow and, and just have really wonderful opportunities to, to build things and to lead. Yeah. And while I was there, I think we had five or six different CEOs. So going through all of those wow. transitions, almost as many CFOs. Yeah. Um, and we were under public scrutiny for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had activist investors, a couple of them, come in and, and, and engage with us. And so, like I said, as a corporate and securities lawyer, when things are going really well, when, and then I had a couple of years of that too in the beginning, yeah. right? When things are going well um, and, and people aren't looking that closely, it can be pretty easy. But when things are, are tougher, and you're getting a lot more scrutiny. I think that's where you're really, you have to be really careful. I think you have to be very thoughtful about what you're doing. Um, stakes are a lot higher, but that's the challenge and that's exciting. To me, that's where the learning is because that's usually harder. Um, it's, there's, it's, there's, more, there's more scrutiny, intensity. Um, you're uncomfortable um, because you don't know you don't know more than you actually probably know, yeah. Um, but you got to get comfortable with that. And I think there you're looking at a lot of the corner cases, right? Yeah. You're just looking at issues that don't often come up. Uh, often they're new issues, and you have to think. You learn to think three or four or more steps down the road. Okay. If we do this, what's going to happen? What may come back at us? And and just being prepared for those things. Um, it's a really great way to just develop judgment, too. Yeah. Right. What what are like and really understanding what are the risks? They're not theoretical risks. Right. They're not yeah, always theoretical yeah. risks. And 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 then how do you deal with those tough situations when, when when things come back at you? Yeah. And you talk about judgment there. And I've heard other general counsel talk about dispensing common sense and mm-hmm. dispensing judgment from experience. And that's often that's what boards and your C-suite, that's what they want. Yes. It's unlikely to be the black letter law answer. And you, yeah. you can find that. It's usually not a direct answer in any way, but it's more about the judgment. And that's what experiences, no doubt, like Yahoo has provided you and beyond. If there is, any, is there anything that you look back at that period that kind of stands out for you as formative that you think was kind of a little bit defining for you? Um, you know, I, like I said, I think I think it's those things that we've talked about. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also, I will also say it was such a fun time. Yeah. You know, as as a lawyer, but and I think some of it was just there was an amazing collection of people that I was working with. Um, but also just there was a really it was a very collaborative environment. Um, so working with a cross functional team, and so yeah. working with different subject matter experts where everyone was coming around the table, you know, bringing their expertise to the table and just learning to rely on other people and learning to, you know, speak up on the areas that, that, you know, that I had expertise in. Um, But all of us working as a team together, that I realized um, was what I loved about being a lawyer, about working in house. And those are the environments that I have looked for after that. So, Christina, then anything, when you look back on that early part of your career, anything that you would do differently? What's the advice that you would give to yourself now about doing something differently there? Is there anything that stands out for you? Yeah, this is something that, you know, when I look back on my early career, my time at 
my time at Latham and probably the first few years at Yahoo too, there was a lot of putting my head down and just doing the work. And I think, and I think it is very important to do that. And I would still tell people now it's something you just have to do that, right? That's 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 part of the process, table stakes. Absolutely. But I also think that it's important to be intentional about your career. And to think about where do you want to get to and what are the things that I should be doing and start to talk with people about those things. And I started to do that more. I had a really great boss when I was at Yahoo. Um, and and so I think that's that's the one thing. And I think networking, too, is really important. And so getting, getting out there and, and doing that earlier. That's funny. That's the number one advice I, I would have given to myself, that networking. I think it sounds like... I've, a little bit like yourself, that kind of the head down, just assume that if you work really hard, you did all the work, that everything else would fall in place. And you're right, it's table stakes, but it's not necessarily enough. Um, or And, and you know, being more intentional about that. And especially, it can be harder too if you're naturally an introvert or it's just, it's just easier to do work rather than putting yourself out there. Just the whole risk of putting yourself out there and trying to build a network. Yeah. Um, but that that is the number one piece of advice I give to, to my adult children right now. Not that they listen to me anymore. <laughs> Five Materials was next. You were there for six years. Mm-hmm. Any takeaways from that part of your career before we launch into Robin Hood? Yeah. So I ended up staying at Applied Materials for about six and a half years. It was such a different company from Yahoo. You know, going from an internet company that, you know, when I joined it, I think it was less, it was less than 10 years old. Uh, When I joined Applied, it was almost 50 years old. The demographics of the workforce were very different. It was obviously a completely different industry. We built machines. And so the forecasting, the planning horizons, how they thought about strategic planning, all of that was completely different. I loved it because I was learning something new. Um, And I was just learning a different way of looking at a business, but there was a growth story there and, uh, and complexity. So they had just signed a merger with another company in the industry. They were going to become a Dutch company and it was going to be listed on NASDAQ and the Tokyo Stock Exchange. And so my job going in was how were we going to manage all those things together? How are you going to align sort of the different governance and reporting regimes looking at the cultural factors. How do you bring that board together and and the company together? And so that was such an exciting challenge. We ended up not doing the transaction. There were a lot of of obstacles to that, but I ended up staying because I really liked the people. I liked the team, the cross-functional partners. I ended up becoming corporate secretary there. I really enjoyed working with the executives and the board. And one of the things that I learned about myself was I could thrive in very different environments. And I think, and I think that's something that when Robin Hood came along, and again, it was a very different industry. And I just thought, you know what, I think I can go do that too. See, I love those stories, Christina. I love the empowerment one gets by working, by, by challenging themselves, trying something completely different outside of their comfort zone, and then feeling empowered to say, mm-hmm. well, actually, I could do this again. Yeah. And I can do this again. I think there's almost nothing more empowering than that, but mm-hmm. it's the early courage to take those steps, to recognise that they might not work out. One of the key themes that comes through 
certainly in this podcast, when I talk about, you know, what are some of the things that you typically advise your younger self? One of the things that comes out is I just take more risks, calculated risks, but I take more risks. I wouldn't be so afraid that something might not work out. And I just think the earlier you do that in your career, the more opportunities present themselves because you've got the, you've got the motion, you've got the courage, and you say, yeah, I can do that. So tell me then, so you've chosen three months into the global <laughs> pandemic to say, you know what, I'm going to move, I'm going to join the Robin Hood team. Tell us about that. Tell us about that, what, what your thinking was, the environment. It must have been incredibly frenetic, kind of hair on fire stuff. Because Robinhood, no doubt, is is experiencing an incredible surge of users at the time. Everyone's at home. Problems that nobody's actually experienced, or well, the company hadn't actually experienced. It. Tell me, I mean, I'm fascinated about your decision and what are those first, you know, six and twelve months like? I spent my last year at Applied, sort of building out, thinking about their ESG strategy, building out a cross-functional team for that. So I was kind of in that mindset of. What's the purpose of a company? What are the different stakeholders? Robinhood comes along, very exciting company. It's a new industry, very mission focused, um, which was appealing to me. Um, and, and also just meeting the executives there, talking with them, getting a sense of what that culture was like and getting a sense of the ambition of the company and where it wanted to go was just super exciting to me. I hadn't done an IPO yet as an in-house lawyer, so that was kind of a bucket list item. But it was really important to me when I was thinking about moving, um, because I loved Applied and I didn't have to move, and I was doing this very exciting thing with, you know, you know, getting into ESG. Um, but Robinhood came along, and it just seemed like an opportunity that uh, I would probably regret not taking. Because of all the opportunities that it opened there, I met the CLO, who I thought was fantastic and, and we get along really well. And, you know, he's one of the best bosses I've ever had. Should we give him a shout out? Daniel Gallagher. Dan I've just Gallagher. done it anyway. Dan so there, Gallagher, you, yep. <laughs> there you go. Yep. But like I said, it was a new industry. He started a couple months before I did. Another DGC started right around the time that I did as well. I came in thinking IPO was probably 18 to 24 months away. Turns out we did the IPO right after my first anniversary. And I yeah. just and I just hit my second anniversary a couple of weeks ago. And so these last two years, I feel like it's dog years, right? It's it's definitely felt more like more than two years because so much has happened um, and a lot of growth too, um, me personally and and, and and at the company as well. So we came in, it was really about understanding what the team was and um and, you know, getting our arms around that. Who are the people? Who are the resources? What are the skill sets that are there? And, and some of it was just also just how was the team positioned within the company? And what was the role that we're playing? And, and where did we want to take that? And how was it organized? Building out a corporate team as we're trying to get public company ready, right? Thinking about what are all the policies? What are the, what are the controls you need to have in place? We were building out our board, too. And so all of those things, you know, and a lot of, you know, the description that people always used was we were building that plane as we were flying it through the air. Yeah. And it really, I mean, it really was that. And then at one point we switched to, we were working on the S1 too. And so, so all of that was going on. It was tremendously exciting. Not a lot of sleep during that year. 
So, I mean, you only started a few months after Daniel. What was the size of the legal team at that point? Are we talking four or five or it's... Probably more like 20 product lawyers um, and some regulatory lawyers. We had a privacy attorney. We had a an employment attorney. We had a small commercial team. And you need to kind of get your arms around, okay, what does that look like? And what does it need to look like mm-hmm. um, moving forward to become IPO ready? What do you focus on? Because you've got so many things going on. What are the, what are the three priorities to make sure you galvanise the team and you, you deliver on those, you know, the top priorities? Give me a sense of what they are, to the extent that you can share, of course. Fortunately, there was a piece of it where the organization of, you know, the way that Dan was structuring the legal department meant that I had my piece of it to focus on, okay. right? There was a, there was a, there was a regulatory and product piece. And then there was a sort of litigation and enforcement and investigations piece. So the piece that I was looking at, and, and, and the team changed over time. I think when I started, I think I had the product team under me and IP. And I also over time had some of the ethics and compliance training. And I had some compliance pieces too, but, but there were just buckets that I could sort of focus on. I could think about, okay, do I, who do I have in place? Do I have leaders for those? Are we going to give them the opportunity to go off and build their teams? And what am I focused on? And then you think about like, what are the projects that you have in place? And, you know, I'm a big checklist person. So what's the checklist? What are the things that we need? What are the things we, we have? And what are the things that we need to build out? And like, who's going to be responsible for those things? So you can be pretty methodical about that. What are the things that need to get done? I think some of the bigger picture things we were looking at, like I said, was, you know, what's the organization and the structure and what are we trying to build to? How can we take the resources and the people and the talent that we have and, you know, fit those into the new structure and what do they want to be doing? And, and, you know, what movement there is going to happen naturally because just based on interest and desire. And then what are the gaps that we have? You know, and then I think, like I said, you know, what's the department's role within the overall organization? And so one of the things as in-house counsel that I really think about is practical problem solving. And so, you know, my goal and when I talk to my teams are I always want our approach to be we're not separate legal counsel. We're not the policemen who are going to say yes or no to something. It is really getting in there engaging with our business partners, understanding what their objectives are and helping them problem solve. And I think, so some of that is just understanding, like, was that our, that our approach within the organization? And if not, how do we move there? And how do we get our business partners to see us in that role? Um, and I think it's a much more satisfying way of practicing law. And I think we can bring a lot more value that way. Were there any strategies um, to ensure that alignment with the businesses, that the lawyers were acting as, the legal team were acting as business partners, not as policemen, but problem solvers. Any particular strategies that you adopted to try and uh, trying to achieve that goal of true business partnership? So when I came in, I had these three E's. It was excellence, engagement, and execution. Yep. And, and those were the things we follow. And, and, you know, those things change over time. But, but the engagement often... Engagement, and that means a lot of really good communication, right? And so the communication is a two-way street and just transparent communication and also understanding who your audience is. 
And so, you know, I, I've always talked with my teams about making sure we understand who the audience is, being able to translate legal advice into language and advice and guidance that non-lawyers can understand and are receptive to. And so I think that focusing on those things, my first question is almost always why, right? You can say, yes, you can do that or no, you can't do that. And then they can go away. Yeah. And, 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 but I feel like we haven't had the full conversation. So I want to know, yeah. like, why do you want to do that? Because yeah. yeah, maybe, yes, you can do that. But maybe there are also other ways to achieve your objectives that are also legally compliant. I think that where I where we sit, especially as a corporate team, especially as a legal team, where we where we really do have a cross cross enterprise view, you can see things, you can connect a lot of dots, and so sometimes you know someone who's coming to me and saying, "Can we do X?" Um, I can't say yes or no, it's legally compliant, but I can also say, okay, I understand that there's these other things going on in the company, or we're thinking about doing these other things. And so this might be yep. more aligned with that as well. And so I think having those conversations and also explaining to our business partners, hey, here's why I'm asking this question, because I want to be helpful to you. I want to be very practical. These are the things that I see coming down the road. So I think yep. just having that very open communication and, and speaking in a way that is not legalistic and, and practical and helpful. So fast forward today, to the extent that you can now, sh you can share high level priorities. What are the priorities for you at Robinhood now, moving forward, thinking about the next 12 months or so? Yeah, I have a strong team of leaders in place now. I think for the last two years, a lot of it was roll up your sleeves and get a lot of stuff done. And, and especially as we're doing things for the first time, you know, really being part of those conversations and establishing practices and processes and, 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 you know, ensuring sort of that overall alignment cross-functionally. Um, and we'll continue doing that. And I think that will continue to evolve. Again, for me, I'd like to be able to step back and be a little bit more strategic, take a longer term view um, and then just look at the organization, too, and make sure we've got a strong foundation in place among the different teams, how the teams are working together, how they're working throughout the company. The other piece, though, is um, just thinking about, again, sort of the cultural piece and the personal piece. I think that as we're, you know, and, and one of the things we thought about early on was just what are the what are the department values? And, and making sure that we are continuing to espouse those and live those. Um, but I think also coming out of COVID and the pandemic, I think hopefully, right, knock on wood, we're at the tail end of that. It's been a long slog in a lot of ways. And so just also just thinking about well-being, right, of the teams and, and what does continued remote work look like? And how, how do we maintain or build in more connectedness, right, as we all continue to work remote or, or in a hybrid fashion? It's a topic at, which I think is top of mind for leaderships across the world. I don't think there's almost nobody not in the leadership position not thinking about this. What does it look like? What's it going to look like in 12 months' time? If we stay the course, whatever that course is, whether it's a hybrid model is chosen, what 
What does that look like in 12, 24, 36 months? And what are the short, medium, long-term effects of that? It is top of mind because I don't think there's a single answer that applies to everyone and everything. They're just not. Particularly when you're at different stages of your career, um, certain groups, women, for example, too. What does that mean longer term? Um, uh, and how does that impact on essentially those relationships and when decisions are being made, whether it's about promotions, whether it's about new opportunities, I think we all have a lot of work ahead of us to make sure that, um, because there will be an imbalance and how are we going to address uh, that imbalance? And I think part of addressing it is being aware of it and discussing it and, and trying to prevent that. But I think especially as companies go back to sort of this hybrid model, where some people are going into the office and others are not, um, I do think it becomes tougher. You can't go back to the way things were before. Um, and, and, and what happens is you're in a meeting and you're all on the Zoom call and then the Zoom call ends and you've got the people who are still in the room and they will continue a conversation. And it's very convenient to do it that way. And it's very natural to do it that way. Um, it would be less, it would be more unnatural if everyone just walks out without saying anything to each other. But you just have to be aware that what that means is the people who are on Zoom, who maybe live in another state, aren't part of that conversation. And how do you bring them back into that conversation? Or how do you cascade that information to them? But you know, there's something lost because they weren't participating in it. And so, so that is something that we just have to be aware of. And we do have to find ways to, to address that and to sort of even that out. Awareness and then deliberate, deliberateness in terms of what are the strategies we're going to adopt to make sure that that bias, and there will be a bias, can be redressed. Christina, how else do you think about leadership? You talked about that. You talked about growing your leadership team. Uh, how do you think about that? Uh, and what, also maybe, what are the, some of the strategies that you adopt to grow and build a leadership team? You know, really essentially building for the next, you know, the next generation, the next cohort of leaders. Tell me a little bit about your, your thinking around that. I feel very fortunate that I have gotten a lot of opportunities as I was coming up in my career and, and opportunities to, to try things and do them. And, and sometimes you fail, but that's how you learn and that's how you grow. And so some of it is, is that providing those opportunities, giving people that sort of that safe space and that support to try things and, you know, and to be there as a resource, but also, you know, allow them that space to try things and to learn from it. Like I said, I feel like I have benefited from people who have supported me in my career and who have either mentored me or sponsored me. And so that's something I feel like as I've been doing this for a number of years now, like I have, that I look for opportunities to to do that as well, sort of reach back and and bring people forward or, you know, with those opportunities, with advocacy, um, sort of behind the scenes, you know, and 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 helping them, you know, either with educational opportunities, with, you know, with stretch assignments, those kinds of things. And then I think some of it is just role modeling, right? What are the things that are important to me? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll admit, Jim, I probably don't want to. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm you oh, know no. I'm not, I'm oh, not no, let's go there. Right. I, 
I think sometimes I, I work a lot. I don't, and, and that's, and that's a choice that I make. And sometimes I look at myself and I say, Christina, you're really overextending yourself. And I don't want people to feel like that has to be the way to success. And Christina, I, I love the fact that you call out because I, it's something I try to do myself personally when I am not acting in a way that I'd like to see others. I want to call it out. And whether sometimes it's just the way, you know, working hard, that's just who I am, uh, overextending myself. But, but sometimes, and this is where I'd encourage everyone in a position, when, you, when the behaviour isn't, um, when you're not walking the talk, when something has happened, being able to be called out about it or calling yourself out and then course correcting. I try and do that here. Well, try and do it you know, at Pursuit, um, my company, and, and sometimes, and, and it's hard because it's hard calling yourself out, but I think if you're able to do that and say this is a behaviour I'm not expecting or this is a behaviour that, that, is, that is a bad behaviour and, and I'm not proud of it, I tell you how liberating that is for your team, for your organisation. What's important is calling it out, but what's important is the course correction. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're a bit late to the party on it, but we're going to take this step, or here's how I'm going to try. So when, when you say you know, there's something that might not make you great model, you're uh, uh, working too hard, no. I, I love it because it shows there's a bit of vulnerability there. And, and it's a recognition uh, that we're not all going to be, and we don't have an expectation uh, to be the same. And I think what you're talking about there too is just authenticity, right? I think uh, being an authentic leader, people know when you're not being authentic. And there's a lot of times where, you know, I'm, you know, sometimes there's tough messages that you have to give. And, and I have to spend time sort of processing for myself wow how does this feel authentic to me? How can I, how can, how am I going to convey this in a way that feels real and honest um, for me? And I think, and I think people feel that. And I think also leaving that space and understanding that people have different approaches and, and they may, they may approach something or react to something differently and sort of welcoming and opening up the space for that because um, you all learn and grow from those different perspectives. Christina, uh, you're on the board of directors of Breakthrough Silicon Valley. Talk a little bit about that. Thank you so much. I have such a passion um, around this organization. They are, Breakthrough Silicon Valley is a college readiness program um, for junior and high school students from underserved communities in San Jose. And so it is largely about launching low income and often first gen students on their path to college. And, you know, I think I had mentioned earlier, my parents were immigrants from Taiwan, um, but they instilled in me and my siblings very early on the power of education. So my, my father was, he was a, he was a doctor and he went to school in Taiwan and his story for us as we were growing up was always that he came from a poor family and it was the, I studied late into the night, 
walk to school uphill both ways. It was, you know, it was that. But I think he was able to test into a great college and a great medical school. And that's ultimately what enabled them to to move to the United States. And so for us growing up, it was always education is a way of opening doors and getting ahead. And so I have such a passion for for this organization um, and, and, and the work that they do. That's fantastic. And just I, I talk a bit about the older you get, um, the more experience under the belt, the more reflective you get, the more you recognise that your real impact is not a sole contribution, it's the impact you're making on others. And that's, that's what cascades, that's what ripples into the community and that's what makes it an enormous difference. And the earlier, and I love the initiative, because the earlier you can make that in someone's life, the greater the compounding effect it has as that person grows. And sometimes they can just be... I'm going to talk a little bit about the legal profession broadly. What do you see, any particular challenges that you see moving forward for the legal profession and anything you'd like to see that change? One thing I'll say is Dan and I have always talked about, we've always laughed about the fact that when we came into Robin Hood, uh, we were just, there were so many challenges that we were facing. And I always just said, you know, they're all opportunities. I always referred to them as, you know, every, every challenge is an opportunity. And so I think that, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about the legal profession now, and what we're doing, I think that the challenge slash opportunity is that increasingly we are expected to and relied upon to advise on more than just legal compliance. And so, again, that requires a lot of those skills that we talked about earlier, right? The um, you just th- that very practical business oriented approach, the problem solving approach, looking around corners so it is a challenge in that, you know, you can't just stay in your legal box. It's, I think it's an opportunity and I think it makes for a much more satisfying practice. So I, I think that's a challenge. And I think, you know, so I am a consumer of outside counsel services and it's great, but a lot of times I think about the assistance and the work product that we get and, and I, I see that there can be a real challenge just for, for law firms in terms of what are we as their clients asking for the sort of cost pressure you know the, you know the, the pressure on um, on the, the hourly rates and also you know they are less connected with the business and so it is a challenge for them too, to increasingly to deliver what it is we're asking for what are some of the strategies that you, that Robin Hood thinks about, your legal team thinks about to kind of bridge that gap? So the advice, so it's it's not about, you know, the, a perfect memorandum of advice that costs $20,000. It's about really understanding what the business problem is and how the advice dovetails into that business problem and what's really needed. And how do you try and bridge that gap because it is it's a gap sometimes it's huge sometimes it's small but it's it's something that I think that all in-house teams are challenged with 
and, and look for um, Yeah, it's something I think about a lot too because I have folks on my, I have a lot of experience. I have folks on my team who have a lot of experience and expertise. As you're on an in-house legal team, over time, you get very, very deep with a particular company, but you don't necessarily see a lot of the reps. You don't necessarily see what, what's going on you know, at other no. comp- at, at numerous other companies. And so that's the view that you can get from outside counsel. And that's where they're very, very, very helpful. And I think what is important is, again, this relationship building, finding some outside counsel that you really trust and who you feel like really understand the business and what you're looking for. And then what ends up happening is there's a little bit of inefficiency there because I think you have to bring them along on things that you don't necessarily... Yeah quote unquote, need them for, but you need them to be able to understand the context of the advice that we're going to be asking for. And so I think it is really just developing, finding those right, the right, the right counselors and, and just having that communication and developing that trust and over time, just course correcting too. And, and, and so we've had some of those conversations where, you know, where we've had to say, you know, this is what you're giving us. And this is actually what we're looking for instead. And, and how can we get there? And they're great. And they're great, yep. right, about about being responsive. There's there's never easy, an easy answer to that question. And it's a constant challenge. But bridging that gap um, so that there is um, clear alignment between what are the business objectives and what, what what's the advice and what's the format <laughs> Um, uh, to make sure those business objectives are being achieved. Um, yeah. Now, I tell you what, I'm going to wrap up with some of my favourite questions, Christina. Um, first one, what's the hardest thing you've ever done, personal or professional, that you're prepared to share with us? I think the hardest thing that I've ever done, it's also probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done, is just being a working parent. It's a hard, hard thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I have two. Um, can I ask how many kids? They're both teenagers now. So one is 13 so and one is 17. So we've gotten them this far. <laughs> oh, oh, oh they're, they're the easy years, the teenage years. That's like a walk I think, in the you know, park. And, and it, it is one of those things. And so my husband <laughs> is also a working professional and, and a fantastic partner. But I think just, you know, there are times throughout your career where you have to hit the accelerator on one and pull back on the other. And, and there's always that give and take. And, and you often feel like you're not yeah. doing the best job that you could at either. But there's, I think there's real benefits. It's all, it's all personal choice. But I think there's a lot of benefits um, for the kids, too, to see how that can work. It's absolutely a partnership. Sometimes we talk about balance. I don't talk about balance. There's never balance. It's just a, it, it's what's going to compromise. What priority has to be balance is over time. I think it can balance over time. Um, never, uh, not that, in the moment. That, yeah. Yeah. Cor- 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 correct. Anything that keeps you up at night now? Just look in the headlines, <laughs> right? Like it, it all, it all keeps me up now. Um, you know, when we think about you know, climate change, social and economic inequality, gun violence, all of those things. But what gives me hope is looking at my kids and their friends and, you know, the brilliant young colleagues that I have too. I think there's a lot of energy and optimism and determination to make things better. And that gives me hope. And, and, and I'm not done yet either. 
there. So, so we'll keep, we'll keep working at it. One final question for you, Christina. Um, the time lapse between when you wake up and when you check your phone for email messages. My phone is right by my bed. It is my alarm. It is my alarm that wakes me up in the morning. So I could say, well, as I'm turning off my alarm, it is just a convenient thing to do. That is not great role modeling either, Jim. No. <laughs> and on that note, Christina, I've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fantastic discussion. I know. I know Thank the audience you so much is absolutely in our love. Thank you very fun. much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>